0: Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrall. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Boom.
1: Gaz, how are you, brother? I'm good. How are you, Chris?
0: Yes, I'm utterly phenomenal, mate, and I'm um, delighted that finally we get the chance to have our Falklands chat. Um, Friends at home, this is the wonderful Gaz Tombling. Gaz has worked uh, tirelessly for the last 24 months with the Global Veterans Alliance, Um, still Standing up to all this nonsense, and and in particular the the, the, the children that that are uh, getting um, getting utterly abused by um, yes, can we say events? Um, so thank you for that, Gaz. But we're not here to talk about the Global Veterans Alliance. We're here to talk about your Falklands um, experience, and I think it's refreshing to hear the perspective of, of a of a signaller because um you hear a lot about the paras don't you and the marines and in, in the falklands a bit about the gurkhas touch of sas crashing their helicopters everywhere but uh yes what 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 made you join the royal signals mate
1: <clears throat> if i'm perfectly honest um when i went down to deep cut in sorry to have the final interview they said what do you want to join and I said, uh, I want to go into Paris and they went, yeah, everything looks good for that. You've got to go off, have your lunch, have a think about it and come back. Went off, had the lunch, looked on the walls, They have murals of paratroopers dropping down and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, that's great. But if I find out I don't like it, what am I going to come out with? And, uh, you know, I thought well, at least if I go in the signals, I'm going to have some sort of trade that I'll be able to use in Sibby Street. And so really it was that logic that made me make that decision and put me in the signals. So that that was really the reasoning behind it.
0: Yeah, I don't think you're the first person that's gone to the recruiting office and then, um, I don't know, either parental sort of guidance, can we say, it's gone, no, don't join the boot next, you will end up a bit thick go and get a trade <laughs> um yeah uh, tell us a bit about training what's it like set, settling into royal signals life
1: um well the infantry training is standard infantry training and so you know i'd spent a good four or five years as a kid in the army cadets so i was quite used to that way of life um and uh once you got through nine months of infantry training with a bit of communication stuff thrown in, uh, you'd then go on to your designated trade. And there was, I don't know, probably about 10 trades that you could apply for. Um, you know, and if you were had the aptitude, then you'd be able to get into those trades. Um, you know, and I just thought, well, RTG radio telegraphist, best pay um it's the most varying job and uh you know if i can get it i'll go for it so um did that got through got the training done um i thought by the skin of my teeth all the way through um but uh even got through the vetting because um for radio telegraphists you have to get clearance up to top secret basically and above and so the vetting process that they do additionally on you is quite in depth and uh you never know whether or not you've passed until the day you go to what we used to call the funny farm which is a camp within a camp and the camp inside is double fenced and rolled barbed wires and they literally have guard dogs and sentries walking around this bloody place um you know and we had guys in a line you go up and the guy on the gate would take your name and he'd just say yes or no and either you were in or you weren't and that's when you found out if you got your vet in and we had a couple of irish lads that never made it and uh, my dad was a full-on left foot in paddy so um you know it was like yeah i'm probably not gonna get through here but um (laughs) they let me in it was like well great okay on we go so um yeah it was, um, it was tough training, but it, it was good. And then, um, you know, you get what we thought was a bit of a joke lottery. Um, you know, you get a choice of three postings. So you write down your top three choices of what you want, you know? and Oh yeah. Everyone wants the USA exchange or something like that. Um, you know, but worst case, somebody has got to go to the outer Hebrides and live a miserable life up there for three years. Um, so it was a bit of a lottery, but my first choice was uh, a regiment called 30 signal regiment 36, um, had the nickname, the globe Trials, And, uh, I thought, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. I just absolutely dreaded the idea of spending seven years in Germany, being in the same camp and really just not doing very much. Um, you know, so I got lucky and, uh, I got in that unit and I got in that unit with the benefit of hindsight at just the right time.
0: You said funny farm, mate. I've put, what a brilliant name for Limston. <laughs> we Friend, went down to Limston. Friends at home, Limston, where the Marines train. That's the funny farm. <laughs> well, some, I don't know if we should call them funny, but some, uh, yeah, sort of certainly a lot of hilarity there. <laughs> we had
1: to do the, um, the assault course there we didn't do the 10 miler beforehand but mm. we done it with full battle webbing and all the rest of it and drop packs river crossing and all that sort of malarkey and then at the very end is that man-made hill with a big trench made of pure sand with logs going up the side and it's the most heartbreaking thing i've ever had to climb up in my life it's horrendous I was like yeah i knew there was a reason i didn't go in the marines
0: may everywhere in the marines is up uphill and wet
1: yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean I, ironically i i ended up working quite closely with the marines during the falklands so and, and also i was on standby for norway um before the falklands came up so they'd issued all the norway kit and then you know ironically they took it all back because it was the Falklands and we never got issued any special kit for the Falklands it was all standard kit we were still wearing ankle boots and using putties um you know it, i think it was a result of the Falklands war that they took up the high leg boot and dispensed with the use of putties but uh
0: Gaz, I'm just going to come in there. I just want to say, Luther, thank you for joining the channel, mate. That's really, really kind of you. Hello to Paul. Paul and I have got a podcast coming up. Paul, I'm showing the, the friends at home our chat chat that's going on on YouTube, Gaz. Paul and I did a fascinating podcast the other day. We could have chatted for hours about Thailand and travelling and getting into scraps and uh, and uh, what it's like to think you're going to die. <laughs> As you do, you know I'm 52 years old. It's how I like to spend my life chatting about chatting about dying. Um, and we got the wonderful Mike McCarthy there. Mike was a para signalman. Do you do, do, do you have any um experience of that? Uh, you know, meeting these sort of
1: guys, Gaz? I uh, I did actually, um but after the war, um, you know, whilst we were all settling in at, at Stanley, there was uh, a communications issue with whichever regiment was stationed up on Sapper Hill. Uh, I had a problem with their HF and they sent me up to fix it. Um, but yeah, that 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 was interesting. I got to sit down with quite a few of the guys and we had some quite deep and meaningful conversations. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, prior to, you know, even when we were on the boat going down, there was this mentality between regiments and between services. You know and most powers were would look down on anybody that was a, a so-called crap hat you know didn't have the berry and um so you know and of course they got quite a good reputation for getting out and having a little lump up on a friday night after a curry so you know nobody really wanted to get involved in that kind of animosity and there was a certain okay we'll keep our distance and all that sort of stuff but there was a mutual respect let's put it that way um but after after the war sitting down um chomping on a bit of food um having a chat about what we all went through um you know i mean i had one guy sitting down and he just had tears streaming down his cheeks and he was hard as fucking nails um you know and that there's always two sides to a coin and uh you know it it, it's a, a very tough experience for a lot of people i've got friends who just can't go back to that time um without suffering some kind of severe trauma quite frankly um so you know i i consider myself extremely fortunate insofar as i i believe i had a good war if you like
0: yes i'm just going to chip in mate if I may and say let 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 let's give some recognition here to a lot of people so not just our wonderful military who uh, let's keep the politics out of this bloody podcast Gaz, um especially uh, for the 40th anniversary um i think we're all old enough now that we want one thing in our lives and that's peace and peace for our for the next generation but um that said we 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 must remember our wonderful forces many of whom like yourself were teenagers when it, when they went down there and and it's extreme i got friends a little bit older than me that were there and they they can't even come on the podcast cuz they're so traumatized still um you know uh but also we should recognize the 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 military nurses that were that were down there on 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 the um, hospital ships. We should recognise the civilians that that manned the cruise liners, and I'm um, guessing the the RFA, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary. Uh, obviously, the people of the Falklands. But I think we also need to recognise my generation. I was 12 years old, and we went through it all, albeit uh, vicariously. Via the BBC News um, every night uh, after the news, after the what what limited bulletins they could get from the Falklands, the list of the dead that had died in battle that day went up the up up the screen, and even to someone like myself, I wasn't in a military family, but you you were caught up in all of this. It was a a, a part of your history, and and I think we all have you know, a, a degree of emotion, but also a, a de- degree of trauma. I mean, war is a very serious thing. Um, I, I've said this a lot. My, 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 my buddy who I joined the Marines with, he, he was 10 years old, and he's having to watch the news to see if his dad, who um, was the sergeant major of Lima Company down there, Lima Company famously fought a couple of battles, didn't they? Was it Mount Harriet, Mount Kent, and they yomped, yomped across the island. And my mate's ten, and he's having to watch the news on his own, reading these names to see if his dad had died that day. It's it's just just hats off to everybody um, affected by by this conflict. Did you? How, how did you get to hear of the war kicking off, Gaz?
1: Um, just turned up for a normal day at work um so we had a troop office, and uh our troops specialized in long range um secure hF communications um we walked in and uh, as I say, we were part of what's called the spearhead unit, so you're probably familiar with that, Chris um but it involves units basically stationed in the Southwest of England, um, and they're on a 24 hour standby um, to go anywhere. Um, and generally it's to do with non-NATO commitments. So we're basically working where we can't, where we're not working for NATO, and this was a non-NATO conflict, then, you know, we could use these troops without um, sort of messing up our commitment to NATO. Um, definitely, we had examples of other nations providing uh, forces, personnel to take over communication centers or battleship stations or whatever, um, so that our commitment was still maintained, but it freed up personnel or ships that could then, you know, go and help out in the effort further south. So was a, a a a lot of jigging around in a very short space of time to get the thing sorted out. But uh we we turned up spearhead wasn't in uh so you do a month on spearhead so it's a third of the regiment and um we came in they're gone the vehicles were gone everything and it was like what's going on and there was some corporal in the room and he was like oh the Falkland Islands have been invaded and we had a world map up on the wall and we're all overlooking at the north of scotland quite literally and um he came over and smugly went nope they're down here and uh we were like what <laughs> who the hell were are they ours?" <laughs> so um you know we we were bemused <coughs> and um but yeah it all kicked off and then obviously the official channels came down, some Major came in, gave us a briefing. And um, from now on in, no leave, no going anywhere. Um, I think we could go down to the pub, but it was like we were on Spearhead, which meant we had to book out at the guardhouse, write down what pub we were going to. And they would literally just phone the pub and so shout Spearhead. And everybody on Spearhead would just leg it for a cab back up the camp and uh and that was it so there was a lot of what we used to call get on the bus get off the bus for a couple of weeks waiting to find out you know are we going is it all going to you know blow away um and then eventually we're on the square probably for about the third time when the vehicle was all lined up and we go and we drove down to can't really remember if it was portsmouth or southampton they all looked bloody same to me and To be honest, you know, by the time we got down there, it was dark. But there was helicopters buzzing around. There was welders on ships, like, you know, just doing crap. There were vehicles everywhere. Um, Royal military police shuttling traffic around. And the only info I had was um, the name of the ship that I was going on. You turn up at the gate and they say, what ship? And I said, Atlantic conveyor. And I went, no, you've been changed. Um, you're going on the Nordic down that way. So I'm going down looking for the Nordic and uh, get there. And they basically split the uh, the unit that I was with into two groups because the Atlantic conveyor was a huge ship. And because uh, it wasn't ready, we got these other two ships that were quite small. And uh, it was like a, a Roro ferry, bright red with, you know, 20 foot high white letters saying Townsend Torreson down the side. And uh, the only thing that was missing was a neon target on the side, as far as I was concerned, but um, you know, as it later turned out, it was a blessing in disguise because if we had ended up on the Atlantic conveyor, there's a good chance we'd have gone down with it.
0: Yes. Tragic. Wasn't it very early on in the conflict to lose the Atlantic conveyor and all the equipment, that was on it all the heavy lifting choppers were on the atlanta conveyor were they
1: not yeah we lost five out of six that were on there in total and that was the only heavy lift by heavy lift that's a chinook helicopter Mm -hmm. um and it also i believe it had about 19 helicopters in total so six of those were chinooks so there were other variants on board as well as you know other vehicles etc um and relatively speaking i think from memory a low l- loss of life but um you know it was relatively catastrophic to the strategic plans of the battle
0: we uh, we sailed back from our arctic warfare training in norway on a civilian ferry it was a, a scandinavian liner um when you come out the field after a 12 day exercise and you literally all your stuff's already packed and you go straight on board a Scandinavian civilian ship <laughs> with the most beautiful women you've ever seen in your life serving you whatever you want and a and a bed like a normal bed. It was just um you know, obviously we weren't uh we weren't under fire. In fact, um I'll just mention this, but my, my favourite picture from the Falklands War, if if you can have a favourite picture, is when the Marines came back into Plymouth and there's an actual picture of the Royal Marines. Some of them officers carrying their briefcases and their SLR or, or submachine gun and their Bergen and their pusser's suitcase. It oh, It really makes me emotional to say this, but... They had to wade ashore, Gaz, you know. They had to wade. They they were brought from the ship in landing craft. So Royal Marines, you know, amphibious landing craft. And the final end to their war was they had, you know, they waded ashore in the Falklands. They had to wade. God, just makes me upset thinking about it. But so, so proud, you know, just so, so proud. So you get down there what are you, are you were you in bomb alley what was some such place or were you outside the exclusion going how, how does it work
1: no we um we were quite a slow ship both of us um and so um we had problems getting down at the same speed as naval vessels for example i think we could do something like 21 knots so when we got to ascension island i mean i remember we pulled in at um freetown in sierra leone which was kind of bizarre um we stayed there overnight but then that's um, down. that's
0: where you pick up your weed wasn't
1: it do <laughs> so, i mean, it, it was just so weird i mean bearing in mind like we're talking about the early 80s at the time you know middle class people would go skiing in the winter and maybe visit Spain in the summer. And that was pretty much travel. And most working class people never been abroad before, I certainly hadn't. So this sailing trip was the first time I left the country. And then before long, we're pulling into this African port. Um, And like, you know, there's literally dugout canoes coming up to the side of the boat trying to flog little birds in brightly colored painted wooden handmade cages and bits of fruit and all this sort of stuff. And it's like Scotty's actually buying this stuff. And it's like, you understand where we're going. What, what are you thinking? Forget it. You're not, you're just not thinking. Mate, do straight. you, do you know,
0: do you know how many parrots are on the Falkland islands now?
1: <laughs> taken over absolute menace but um, guys i just gotta yeah,
0: t- go I, I, I sorry to sidetrack my little anecdote we we went uh when i was on hms invincible for that year uh, we went ashore in alexandra in 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 uh, egypt and yeah. so those of us that weren't on ship shift for the next few days we hopped on a, a bus to cairo to do the you know the pyramids and the camels thing yeah. and when we got on this bus they're all the locals all coming up to the window with their goods just like you're saying all this sort of you know raffia work and homemade stuff and trinkets and exquisite you know boxes with all this ornamental stuff inlaid. late you, you you know the sort of thing and um the matlow that was sat next to me he was he was just a massive joker and he's going oh yes yes oh hello oh oh yes very Oh yes, good. And he's he's building this stack of bloody gizits, right? <laughs> and and just as he can't like balance any more, any more in his lap, the bus pulled away. <laughs> I'm, friends, I'm not saying this is good behaviour. I'm saying this is what happened, right? And these poor youngsters, like that's that's their next week's wages, are <laughs> ru- running down after after the after our uh minibus, the next thing I know, right, I look over my shoulder and the police are behind us. A bloody police van or car or something. And I'm like, mate, mate, please. so You know, someone must have run up to a nearest copper and gone, he's stolen my stuff. And we went all the way to um, uh, Cairo with this this police following. It took me halfway to realise it, it was the tourist police that escorted escorts the tourist buses everywhere um but yes so there you are you've loaded up with your pineapples and your bananas and your budgerigars and um and uh yeah so where did you where did you hove to down there if if you did such such um, a thing
1: we ended up hooking up with the task force and got no idea where that was you didn't need to know you just knew there were other ships around but um, I believe that was out to the east of the islands, out of range of the exercise. Um, and then basically they were funneling ships in. So, three commando brigade had already gone in and established a beachhead. Um, and uh, we were now going in to sort of reinforce them. And we were the advance party for five brigade so we got there before five brigade but just on the back end of three commando um but we we were escorted in by intrepid and i know the first night that we went we were too slow and they ordered us turn around and go back and try and find the task force um and uh that was that the next night we went we just got told that there were feature which are now known to be fanning head that um, potentially had enemy on it. And so we cammed up, you know, we haven't been out of the ship for ages. Once you get onto darkened and ship, um, it's quite rare that you get an opportunity to see daylight. So all of a sudden we've been walking around in red light below decks, got all the cam on, bit of scrim, all this sort of stuff, weapons loaded made ready um and we're up literally hunkering down behind the gunnels on the deck and we're just waiting as soon as there's any incoming then you get up and return fire um but thankfully we went through without any event went back down below decks and then next morning i remember sticking my head out and um you know it wasn't enough being in this big glowing red ship Um, I look over and I see Canberra and it's like great (laughs) there's us our sister ship the same color as us and then this bloody great white thing with yellow chimneys on it uh how they're gonna miss us so um yeah we didn't know how long we were gonna be stuck there for or whatever but we were just running around always always busy um did you um, see the did you
0: see the firefight at Fanning Head
1: no um i'm not sure who would have done because um i can't remember i think it was one of the parachute regiments from memory that actually um went up there and took care of them because they weren't originally um spotted i mean i think one of the biggest problems that we had down there with benefit hindsight was the quality of intelligence that we had um and that's to say you know a lot of people believe it that it could have been better um but you can't argue with the end result you know so it is what it is mm-hmm. but so um, no um the only thing at that point really once um they decided i mean there was constant air raids on the ship so you know you just air raid warning red shelter 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 and unless you had an anti-aircraft position, you generally was just grabbing a strand and running down to your bunk room, sitting on the floor and eating it, um, you know, and they had tannoy systems throughout the ship, like the speaker systems. And um, they, they give you a countdown of what was going on. I mean, when we were actually out at sea, when when we got an air raid there, um, you know, the naval commander on the ship um would essentially give you a countdown saying right we've got an extra set inbound and they could launch these things up to I think 30 miles away and after 13 miles you've got to take the curvature of the earth into consideration um um,
0: um, excuse me mate everybody knows everybody knows the earth is flat right
1: I am so not getting involved in that bloody argument um but the point is that um that you couldn't see the aircraft that were launching um, physically. You could only see them on radar, and um, I appreciate we had some, let's say, good local intelligence of when these aircraft were taking off. Um, so I think we had a relatively good air defence system in that regard. But um, when when these things came in, you know, we were in a group of ships steaming south, and um, we had no idea of what decision that little computer was making on what target it was deciding to lock onto. But you know, the, the, the air defense on our ship was primarily, remember when you used to clean your weapon, you'd get your bit of 4B2, stick it on your pull through, oil your barrel, and then you'd throw away your bit of 4B2. Well, we had open oil drums on the deck you'd throw that 4v2 into. And if ever we came under close air attack, then we just chucked a zippo inside those oil drums. All this black smoke goes up. And um hopefully we look like we're here and they go and try and have a go at something else. I mean, you know, that was, you know and it had its in skeleton civic crew on board, but it also had a naval crew on board. So the commander was naval and there was a lot of um naval sort of uh traditions that we uh had to pick up along the way.
0: That it, that sounds like a great ploy. Um reminds me of a time when we were in Norway there was a massive company joke about this. Uh we were gonna get there was one day we were gonna get attacked by the Norwegians, right? They were playing the enemy obviously wonderful Norwegians. Hello Norway. Um but they're coming to attack us and our I, I can't remember who, it was one of our COs, decided, it was company commander, I think, that decided we'd take our NBC suits, or so our nuclear, biological and chemical suits folks that were, you know, you're, you're praying in the military, you never have to wear that shit because that's not real war, that's kind of some, like, <laughs> futuristic stuff it's so uncomfortable to wear. So we had to fill them with snow. And put them in a mock positions, um, and I, I don't know if it worked or not. I don't know if yeah. it lured lured the Norwegians into thinking that was us, but you can imagine the amount of piss taking that just <laughs> took place. <laughs> it was every every orders that got put up on the board from that point on was always like, yeah, don't forget your to fill your NBC suits with snow or or snowmen snowmen in mbc suits (laughs) because
1: um because we had access to teleprinters on the ship um as part of the communications kit we could type up notices and they had like a part one and part two orders board outside the purser's office so um we used to type up the occasional little joke orders board and um you know in the early days it was quite light-hearted um i think the first one i put up was uh keys to the snooker room will be available from 0730 at the purser's office and like 0730 was like scran time <laughs> so i knew that i'd be going down for scran and i can have a quick look at the purses office there's uh
0: do you want to do, a... do you want to know an actual fact
1: three gurkhas and two powers
0: sorry you've lost yeah. me I'm. i'm uh no my my, for the
1: case.
0: my my actual fact Gaz, is that there it there was a ship in the royal navy that had a pool table on board <laughs> i can't remember which one it was but when i when i was on, at sea um there was one of our fellow ships had a pool, they did, actually did have a pool table on board so it yeah. was that thing so it's got a pool table
1: <laughs> yeah i saw one the other day in like the latest technology that uses um accelerometers out of a phone and it's brilliant. They were in quite heavy pitching waters and uh, just having a proper game of pull. And there was no effect on the balls at all. It was brilliant. But um, back then on an overnight Roro ferry, um, yeah, I don't think a snooker table was uh, a logical conclusion for anybody to be drawing. But uh, there were people queuing up for the keys anyway. And that was, yeah, just the way of keeping the humour going, really. Have you ever
0: seen that footage of the. Uh the ferry at sea when the the weather's just got utterly horrendous. And, and it's just beyond belief. The passengers are just getting smashed, smashed everywhere. I, I, I might see if I can find it while we're chatting. But um, d- did you get issued Arctic warfare kit? Because I know the Marines took their Arctic warfare kit down there because it was the nearest thing they had to, you know, protect them from the,
1: the cold no i I think I mentioned earlier, but um we we were just wearing standard um you know NATO equipment, and uh we were still using ankle boots and putties um you know I think the army's pretty reactive rather than proactive, and I think that it upgraded a lot of kit as a result of the war um you know as a result of feedback from commanders in the field um ultimately from the men that were actually having to use that equipment in those conditions had had you bought anything specially to go
0: down there with or was it all too too short notice
1: no I, it's um really it, it, it's just because the signals are kind of it's it's a bit different from like infantry regiments you're going through an infantry regiment and you're basically in that unit it's almost like a family unit for the time of your service it might be that the regiment is big enough that it has battalions and you might switch between battalions but you know more often than not regardless once you're in a battalion you're probably in there for a good few years um in the signals you can end up in that kind of environment but by the same token you can end up doing odd jobs I mean you know my three years at 36 i had done just about every job that you can imagine that a signaler could or would do um you know and I consider myself extremely fortunate to have had that opportunity you know and again just the Falklands War it was nothing to do with NATO uh, and it was the first time I think since the second World War that all three services, have been operational in the same war, you know, and as I said, I ended up working in um, a field HQ that was half run by Marines, half run by Army Royal Signals, um, you know, and had every service representative sitting down, communicating to the front line from where we were. So, um, you know, and the jobs that I had additionally, you know, little things like um, on the ship coming down, because it was a civvy ship and they used to use walkie talkies, we needed radio silence. So we had to have a telephone infrastructure. And because of the way the ships are built, they're watertight all the way through. The only place that they could find that we could run a cable was that a lot of ships have an elevator shaft that runs through the middle. And so they decided that we were going to run the cables between decks and it was about five decks from memory on the ship and um yeah I was I was in there they had a descender and a figure eight put the bloody stuff on and I'm literally abseiling down this dark tunnel with a torch hanging out my jacket and a pack of d10 uh, sort of telephone wire stripping out the back um you know which officially in the signals is a lineman's job But you get to all the trades and if there's no lineman about, guess what? You're dropping down whatever hole running cables. And this ship's pitching all over the place. So I'm bouncing around inside this thing. And I I just loved it. I mean, it was all action man stuff for me. It was like, you know, and at that point, we still figured, you know what? The politicians and the diplomats, that this isn't going to go to war you know and i think most people would agree that until really um you know the belgrano um everybody was thinking it was going to be diplomacy uh but once that happened i think most of us knew that that's it we're going in so um yeah
0: how did you eventually how did you physically get ashore gaz
1: um the first time <laughs> um we landed I think by um, by landing craft. So we had the Land Rovers and everything trailers on the back. Um, And we landed probably close to Ajax Bay. But that that area where we actually hit the beach, you know, at the time, none of these names really meant very much. Um, They were just getting made up on the fly so they could go on a map. Now, anybody that studied the Falklands War knows these places like you know they're real places um you know they're beach colors and all the rest of it so um we we just knew that's it we're off a boat and for a squaddy who's just spent a month at sea the one thing you don't want to do as a squaddy, and probably the same for a marine and probably sailors but you know what if you spend your life on a ship there's always a chance that that's where you're going to finish it um and as a squaddy, you really didn't want that so um once we actually got ashore there was actually a sense of relief um certainly for me and i think for probably a lot of the guys you know land lovers so um on unsure um what what um what what accommodation are you uh,
0: accommodation but what what what's your sleep it what's the sleeping situation if if obviously the most of the troops down there had literally slept in a poncho didn't they which is just the most Crappest, crappiest thing in 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 those conditions.
1: It it varied, but uh, you know, as a signalman, having gone through various exercises, and so you end up doing various different jobs. Sometimes there's a nice ten man tent, and you know, little wire hoop beds to put your sleeping bag on. And other times you dig in a trench, and you know, sleeping in a crouched position that's way too small. Um, It just depended where you were at the time. Um so during the conflict, um once we got ashore, depending where we were, depended where we were sleeping, there was times when it was um literally under a a shifty made canvas. Um, But more often than not, um there would be some outbuilding somewhere where we could just go in and there would be I know at least one location we had the little wire hoop beds made up and there were sleeping bags on them. And it was just a hot bed system. You just turned up when you got off shift and it was certainly going to get you three and a half hours kip. You just went down there, found one that was free, got in it and crashed. And, um, you know, I don't think there was any of that REM crap. You just went straight into deep sleep. And it took somebody giving you a boot to wake up again, and then you were back on it again for the day. I think, um,
0: as they're founding out, finding out to their cost in Ukraine, it's, it, it's a different theater of war now. Could you imagine if they had the technology now back then, so they could put a drone up in the air. It could just look at any, it could spot any outbuildings, call, call in a precision airstrike, boom, boom. Boom! Just literally take take out every 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 single building in in um on the Falkland Islands or, or where the perceived where, where the Argentines would perceive their enemy enemy to be, and of course vice possibly vice versa. Although when you're ensconced in um, the capital Stanley, it's um the British didn't have that uh, possibility, did they? With the obviously all the civilians around,
1: no um although having said that um you know after you know in the literally the days after the war and i had a lot of opportunity to be wandering around stanley freely um and um a lot of the houses on on the road going from what was known as the race course which is the road going back into port stanley um they they were just filled with, you know, whatever units turned up. So like you know, half a, bleeding two power had got half a street of these bungalow houses, and then there was a group of marines in another couple of houses, and there was a bit of a party atmosphere going down. You know, everybody's like outside, and maybe there's a, a beer being had or something like that. Um, but you know, there's things that a lot of people certainly I haven't heard bringing up, but were prevalent at the time, talking to the boys there that, you know, when they moved into those houses, a lot of them have been previously occupied by the Argentine and a lot of them have been booby trapped. So, you know, there were things like you go into a room and there's a cup and saucer on the table with the upturned cup. And underneath there's a grenade where they've removed the pin. And so as you pick the cup up, the grenade drops out and explodes. Um, And so, you know, there were other improvised devices that were left around, as well as the fact that their hygiene, I mean, they, they had to have done it on purpose. It was just disgusting the amount of human waste that was just on tables, on counters. It was just everywhere. It was filth, you know, and just being British that's not playing cricket so um yeah you know we we had a bit of a low um sort of opinion if you like of uh of our opposition at the time okay
0: yeah, we had major major andy shaw royal marines on the po- podcast yeah. um cred, incredible gentleman um and he just said "Fucking animals chris Fucking animals um I'm not saying this folks, I'm a podcast host. I'm I'm relaying information. So all you sissies out there, calm the fuck down. Yeah. But um that's what he's that's what he said, Gaz, you know? Yeah. Um
1: Yeah, but getting back to the technology thing, I mean, one thing we did have when I was walking down the streets, one of the guys I saw who was um, you know, he was in a Royal Marines berry and I was like, I don't know you. And we'd either been in training, military training or communications training together. But I went over and how are you doing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, good. And I'm like, you know, so what was your war like? You know, that was basically the conversation. And um and why are you why are you a freaking marine? And you know, the Royal Signals, let's just say, is potentially an avenue for a, a lot of job opportunities that are a little offshoot. And um, regardless of what his berry was or wasn't, uh, he was what we call a speck op. And so they used to do direction finding. So, you know, they'd have two or three of these guys out in the field and they'd home in on one particular signal with a very sensitive antenna that would give them an exact bearing. And of course, once you cross the lines where these bearings cross, that's where the target is transmitting from. And this guy sitting there saying like, yeah, I was speaking to this guy with a southern Argentinian Spanish accent, um, Jose, you know, and we're having this chat about what it's going to be like when we get back home and all this stuff and just waiting for the artillery to drop in. And uh, then all of a sudden, like the phone goes dead, job done. So, you know, there was an element of that stuff going on, Um, you know, and equally, uh allegedly they have very good ew as well electronic warfare capabilities so you know um working on an hq that had at least 12 mast antennas outside we must have been glowing like a light bulb and i still to this day don't understand why we never got singled out for um artillery strikes but there you go i'm glad we didn't so was
0: it hard being shore, mate was it was were you cold and hungry like like the sort of if we I,
1: I would say um that I was in the fortunate position that it didn't matter how bad I had it I definitely knew there was a shed load of guys out there that were having it a lot worse than me and you know I was in no position to actually complain about it and as per when you go on exercise you know what you can whinge all you like nobody's listening um you know and in a couple of weeks you're not even going to remember so just get a stiff up a little and get on with it Gaz, yeah, um, sorry we, we, it.
0: my miles is asking which specific part of the signals were you in I know you've said that but could you just say it again for our audience
1: yeah so I was part of 30 signal regimen which is you know multifunctional we provide communication so basically all situations um, during the campaign my original task was as the headquarters for five infantry brigade and the original plan was three commando g- brigade would go down take the islands five commando uh, five infantry brigade would come down behind them garrison the islands let three commando go home and get their team medals and um we'd sit there and basically scare off the RGs from coming back. Um but obviously that changed as we went down. And so as did the designation of you know my job. Um, because uh, rather than being headquarters for 5 infantry brigade, um, I ended up becoming part of the land force headquarters, which as I mentioned was half marine, half army. So Yes. Can you, um, I'm conscious of the
0: time here because I know that you've got another engagement. Um, what, did you, were you parties to some harrowing sites or was that just up on the mountains where, where the boys were fighting?
1: Harrowing, not really. I mean, the thing, the other good thing about this war for me was the fact that we spent a month on a boat going down there, which means you've got a lot of time to ask yourself all those personal questions, like well I'm in it now what if I actually do have to kill someone how do I feel about that you know questions that a lot of people that get thrown into war like these people that are volunteering to go running off into some battle that they've got absolutely bugger all to do with um and no understanding of what's really going on you know and then they get there and they haven't had time to ask themselves those questions and they may not have actually thought about it so By the time I got down there, you know, morally, I sorted myself out that I figured what I was doing was right. Um, And that as much as I didn't like the idea of killing people, we were in a battle. I would signed up for it. And um, if they were in the way, that was it. Um, It was all going down. Um, You know, but uh, I think what a lot of people may lose sight of is just the dangers of being in the battlefield full stop you know um yeah chances of getting killed on a ship on the way down horrendous for everybody on the ship simple as that uh and that was a very real threat and i know for a fact there were certain people that psychologically broke down whilst they were listening to those countdowns of exorcets coming in and the thought that oh you know i just got married a couple of weeks ago and you know, uh, literally just losing their marbles in front of the rest of the guys. Um that sort of shit happens. Um but most of the guys were like, like you know, this is it. We signed on the dotted line, we're doing the right thing, so we're going in and we're doing it. And you know, I believe that most of the people that went there and did that did it for the right reasons. You know, uh as, as you said, no need to get into the politics of it or anything else. Um, you know the people that went believed the narrative they were given and um and they went and they done a bloody good job Gaz do you think we was a bit
0: like temporarily sociopathic when we served um from the perspective that like, we was quite willing to do stuff now that when I look back i think bloody hell um i'm I'm not suggesting this is a you know anything to feel guilty of or whatever but it's kind of unreal isn't it that the atrocity that you'll commit on your fellow on your fellow man um considering we all have to share the bloody planet together
1: yeah um to classify it as psychopathy for example is just a bit too ambiguous i would argue i think the unfortunate truth and most people don't want to admit to it or don't believe it to be true but the majority of people are capable of things way way beyond what they think they're capable of um I think one thing that goes for most people that have been in the services for any period of time is they see the sign of people coming out in extreme circumstances that they wouldn't ordinarily see and they wouldn't have guessed that person to be able to possess um so yeah you see some very questionable behaviour. Um, and the fact that you're asking essentially teenagers to be okay with potentially, you know, face on face, fisticuffs, bayonets, bullets, the whole nine yards, um, you could argue it's it's psychopathic to ask kids to do that sort of thing.
0: Um, oh, we're, but- mate, mate, we on this show we're well aware who the psychopaths are, <laughs> and I know, I know you are too, mate
1: yeah for sure um but yeah I I personally you know I, I think that people are capable to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do certainly from my perspective um you know I questioned every decision I had to make down there particularly when it involved another life and um you know there were the odd individuals that you saw or heard of that perhaps just enjoyed the idea of killing rather than wanting to end a bad situation as peacefully as you possibly can in that given environment you know so gas
0: um where were you when you heard the argentines
1: sign the surrender um i was on the forward um hq so the the tech hq Essentially, the way it works, once you've got the land battle going, you've got the headquarters, but the headquarters needs to be relatively close to the front line so that you've got your generals and all the rest of it, uh, able to have close communication with the front line. However, if for some reason the front line falls back and you're unable to pack up, obviously you don't want your generals being in there if your front line of infantry are falling back under attack. So um, they need somewhere else to be able to go, so you have two headquarters and you pepper pop in the same way as you do as infantry moving forward in pairs. One's down shooting while the other one's running and then he gets down he's shooting while the other one gets up and starts running, so we do the same with the headquarters. Now um, what we had in this instance was the land TAC HQ which I was part of, um, which was originally called biffy which was British Forces, Falkland Islands. And then it became Liffey for the Land Forces, Falkland Islands. I think they were just making crap up on the go, but whatever. Um, and then our Pepper Pot HQ was actually based on HMS Fearless. So um, when General Moore and the rest of the guys weren't with us, they were on Fearless. And so that's how they were running the battle. Um, and so um, by the time we moved i mean we moved originally from bomb alley up to T set up there and then the battle was run from teal um and then we they went back to fearless we had to move to um fitzroy and that was by helicopter and that was just the most surreal helicopter ride. i, I mean you know i loved everything to do with aviation love the military the army army stuff and um so this was like in a lot of ways a dream I knew it was serious um but like you know what this is brilliant what an experience and um you know all the normal crap we used to have like health and safety for getting on a heli where you sit down and you get on one knee and your little sort of stick and you put your berry away in a pocket and you make your weapons safe and you wait until you're called in, you get an helicopter, you go to the back seat, you sit down, you put your weapon under your feet on the floor, belt yourself up, put your hands on your head like that when you're ready to so load, you can see that you're all done. Um, you know, when we got there, load, was just get the fuck in because he didn't want to be on the ground. And, um, you know, one of them asked, what are you doing? Because I was unloading on the way in. He's like, just leave it on. And um we got in the seat. I went to do my belt up. What the fuck are you doing? If this thing goes down, the last thing you want is that on. And so all of it just went out the window. You got in sat where you could, and then off we went. And the pilots, um, I mean, we were on this occasion in a Wessex five, I think, and there was a low ceiling of fog, so you could see the hills sort of disappearing up into the fog light. and um, we were contour flying. So where there's these rivers going through this fairly featureless ground, um, we were flying down in that little valley that the river had formed. And I remember at one point we were steep banking a corner to stay in this little valley. And I looked over my right shoulder and there was a little blister window. And as we took the corner, I saw the rotor blade take a chunk of peat out the ground and send it flying through the air. And I just went white for a second. I was like, this really is for real. I mean, fuck the bullets. We could go down in a crash any second. And and then the next thing I know, we're straightening up and then the arse end of the the helicopter almost hits the floor and we go straight up into these clouds. And we're like just getting tossed around, no seatbelts in the back, loaded weapons, and we're all just like bouncing around and then we dropped just as fast as we were going up and um we got out at the other end of fitzroy and one of the guys was checking the pilot was like what the and he was like there was a high ridge of ground that we had to fly over and um there were apparently two argentine artillery positions on them and we were taking small arms incoming as we were flying over them but thankfully, they were completely in fog, so they could hear us. They couldn't necessarily see us, so um, it was like, yeah, that 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 was um, that was pretty interesting. And then we were down at Fitzroy for a while. Um, got moved up to Bluff Cove by I think it was St Percival. So we went up there. I remember we had some Marines on board, and uh, turned around. I was like, guys, where's your gas masks? And they were like oh yeah fuck that don't need that too much weight got rid of them and it was like at the time it, we were still thinking well i got picaras and we i'm not sure i'd be chucking away my great but uh yeah that was a bit strange but yeah we were set up in um fitzroy bluff cove um when the surrender went down and it was actually one of my mates who was on the pepperpot hq on fearless um that typed up that surrender on one of the teleprinters on board ship and uh and then helicoptered it in with um with general Moore.
0: that wasn't another joke was it no (laughs) it's actually the war's still going on
1: (laughs) uh, Um, I saw a video um a couple of weeks ago where this individual that supposedly is very knowledgeable on the Falklands campaign um was stating that you know this big fallacy over a surrender was signed and that it was actually a ceasefire and it's like well i've seen the document on endless documentaries mm. it says the word surrender in the title in the text um and in fact the word that they had to cross out was the word unconditional which came immediately before the word surrender mm. it's like I'm not sure where you're getting the idea that this is. I think like.
0: um, they it might be getting a wires cross with when Royal Navy Party 8901, so basically the Royal Marines that were down there when they ferociously fought off the Argentine invasion uh, initially before before the war had started. Um, they fought like lions, and everything was hushed up for political reasons. They they said, "Oh, they killed one Argentinian and, and it was like. It was way more of a scrap than that. It was. It was. It was you know, these guys were out. You, you know, you're a raw marine. You're you're going to fight until you die. It's that simple, right? But what yeah. happened is, is Rex Hunt very cleverly negotiated a ceasefire. Right? It was a ceasefire. I.e., give us time to get. A, you know, to, to do something. Obviously, they they didn't know about the task force at the time, but that that was the result of. Of his engineering, and those marines were flown back to Ascension, flown home, or flown back to I think it was via Montevideo or something. They, yeah, the, the, the boys in that party were put up in a hotel, I think it was Montevideo, which is, is Chile. Um, that night, the bar bill was something like 16,000 pounds, <laughs> right? I, I'm, I'm. Guys, I'm prone to exaggeration. Who cares? It's a story. But the, the point is they went back to uh, were repatriated to the United Kingdom and immediately hopped on the ships on the task force and, and sailed back down and famously hoisted the Union Jack, but the, it was a ceasefire. I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying that to, to, um, to be a dick saying it because those guys deserve the the, the 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 credit that they've been denied all these years um they didn't surrender they they, they wouldn't have surrendered they would have fought to the death and a, 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 anybody who served in the british forces know, knows they would have done um gaz so much i'd love to talk about i'd love to talk about the the one of the commanders down there i mean the big wigs came up I've been watching the documentary. It was on TV the other night. Uh, split the forces, and suddenly started to come in from the south by by landing, and it and it all went to. It, it was like when they should have been powering through the mountains, taking the mountains, pushing onto Stanley. Suddenly, but anyway, let's not get into that. What what I want to say is, is you stayed on for three months, which is uh, mm. uh, fascinating in itself. What. What was this, what state was Stanley in? What kind of stuff are you seeing? Um, how quickly did they tidy up? was there, was there big arms dumps everywhere? how do they, How do you deal with that I mean were there piles of rusting weapons?
1: We um helicoptered in, I think the day after they'd signed the surrender document. And we billeted in government house and um we set the hq up there um as a temporary hq and uh ended up kipping um underneath the snooker table so like up in their loft they've got this snooker table and there was a shed load of us that kept underneath it and that became our bed space but as a result there's just loads and loads of graffiti underneath it like hundreds and hundreds of signatures and you know whatever else squaddies decide to write on a priceless piece of furniture but um yeah when I went back in 2016 um the current governor or the incumbent governor uh and his wife took us up there and uh I went underneath and took some photos on my phone and uh all that sort of stuff but um we we set up a comms then in um what was a um uh an old YMCA center sort of hexagonal modernish looking thing but it had already been condemned um poor construction Um, and we're there with kangle hammers on the roof like drilling holes in so we could put up 12 meter masts um you know and and that was just one of the hardest things i remember doing down there to be honest there was a gale force wind um hurricane going outside Blowing in off the Antarctic. And it was so cold that you could literally just go out there for 15 minutes and either drill a hole or put a section of pole up or tighten up a guy rope, whatever it is we needed to do. But we needed a lot of these antennas up on the roof as quickly as possible so we could get this comms sent up and running. Um, you know, so we were up there just doing 15 minute shifts downstairs. 15 minutes having a brew and warming up your hands and everything else and i just couldn't believe how cold how quickly you could get that cold and then like but you know some major had it all right it was like well if i get i can take 15 minutes of that so you'd be out there and oh, at least get a brew at the end of it you know and get back down and but like got the whole thing up and running that night got it all working and um got full secure comms going back to all the major hqs so um you know once we got that sorted out um walking around town um you know for whatever reasons i i had quite a lot of freedom and um the town was exactly as you see on any of the youtube documentaries that you might look at um there was still smoke coming out of buildings there was this acrid smell of just burning everything really um chemicals fuel um and you know body smells as well um when we moved in the first night we were in government house um there's a room at the back that had some french doors that opened into the garden and um one of the lads was giving me an aerial tour of the garden and literally as you walked out the back door there's a dead argy with his leg severed at the knee, uh, you know, fucking slumped almost at the door. So you had to make sure you didn't trip over him when you were going out. And then a little further up the garden, there's another one that had been slotted. Um, you know, I think these were mainly remnants of um incoming artillery or something of that nature. But um, there were stiffs were quite common, um, you know, corpses. Um, and as for weapons. There was um, an awful lot of weapons piled up from, you know, I mean, initially that they knew the game was over. Um, the amount of animosity between the actual soldiers and their officers was a surprise, um, and it got to the point where when the RMPs were disarming the Argentine soldiers, they were leaving Argentine officers with a sidearm and a mag of ammo for their own protection you know before sending them off to basically you know survive for themselves um down at what was the airport um and so yeah there were big piles of their weapons and all the rest of it just stacked up and you know i mean as i say for the three months after that i was there um it was no surprise to come across um you know uh, Argentine weaponry or leftover this and that, you know, I found a grenade that was just lying around in the open. Um, and um, yeah, there were several guys that found rifles that were in unusual places. Um, and uh, I think the nice thing was, you know, the civvies, um, I mean, it, it was a bit bad, you know, if I'm brutally honest. Most of the boys having spent like, uh, a month on a boat, at least, and then like you know, a month marching across the bloody island. Um, hadn't seen a woman in all that time. Um, anything that was vaguely female in Stanley was was looking like a nine out of ten all of a sudden. Hey, um, uh,
0: uh, I'm I'm feeling sorry for the fucking sheep. <laughs>
1: I would be as well, mate. <laughs> I remember when I when I was up chatting with the powers um on Sapper Hill. Uh, one of the guys just went out, heard a bang, came back, sheep over his shoulders, um, and uh, they had these, um, the huts we were in were like these sort of, I don't know, wild west huts really, there were two rooms, and uh, they were separated by one wall, and uh, they had um, a peat stove, um, you know, going up the middle of the room, if you like, so there was one in each room and um so this thing was constantly burning and there's paint everywhere it just needs to be relatively dry but uh yeah next thing I learned it's like you know some power walks out and this white change uh, yeah and he's like messed in and it's like there's a stake of sheep and literally it it was rare in fact I would argue it was blued because you could see the searing from the little pot stand on the uh on the burner was actually seed into the steak and it was like done on one side done on the other and the rest of it was just raw flesh and it was like am I going to back down in front of this lot <laughs> and it was like well they're all eating it I'm fucking eating it so um yeah there was some uh funny old stuff went on
0: Gaz, listen I'm conscious that there's a a GVA meeting now or is it a, 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 a,
1: uh, a chat, yeah, a chat. Need to
0: open that. so big shout out to the Global Veterans Alliance for actually doing what veterans are supposed to do which is stand up to the plate and protect the bloody children stop buying into this utter utter nonsense that's coming from essentially pharmaceutical companies that made 80 billion profit last year guys. 80 billion mm. Just, just let that sink in when you're wearing your when you're wearing your underpants on your face um, and clapping like a, you know, on your front doorstep clapping like a sea lion. How much these people take you for a kipper, and let's start doing the right thing for the kids. Um, so I just want to mention that, mate, because that's our, you know, that's our mutual ground, yeah. isn't it? And that's um. our. That, Bill a,
1: Gates has yeah. just got his new book come out uh, telling us all about the next pandemic ah. and how we all need to be taking, you know, all the pharmaceuticals that he's basically got his fingers in Yeah. Um, to and, overcome these so-called and what, no,
0: what, diseases. Gaz, what none of these psychos tell you and what's been hidden from society is you're born perfect, you're born with the best immune system that Mother Nature could ever create. Why the frick, you know, have we been bullshitted into tampering with it? But that's another, that's another chat again. Um, I'll tell you what, mate, you're, you're, I I, I know I speak on behalf of everyone in the chat. Let's just say hello to them. There we go, guys. You're absolutely wonderful. I've never seen such a respectful chat in all my time on YouTube. Um, You're an absolutely natural speaker, Gaz really just thoroughly engaging i i just my god i i I don't know if enjoy is the right word when we're we're talking about such such um traumatizing times but you you certainly bloody sum it up well mate um massive thank you for your commitment teenager in the falklands for crying out loud to every other person we gave them all a, a shout out at the beginning so i won't i won't go through it again um friends watching this if you're struggling okay I, I i haven't got much time here to go into one but leave the past behind it's gone tomorrow is an amazingly beautiful day and any of your oppos that are no longer with us or mine we've had quite a few go haven't we they they only want one thing for us which is get out there and freaking smash it have fun seize the day and move forward, There's nothing to be gained by by creating your identity 20, 40 years ago, whatever the case may be, we respect what happened, we learn by it, we we, we, we forever love our, 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 our comrades that are no longer here, but we have to move forward, um, and if you are struggling, remember a real warrior is the one that reaches out, picks up the phone calls one of the helplines call calls one of the, the the charities or or calls a mate that they know they know they can trust so I just wanted to say that Gaz. massive thank you again brother just just stay on the line obviously to everybody at home if you could please do this one which is like and subscribe it helps us to grow the channel and you know let's be honest where else are you going to hear a chat like this you know this this should this should be on your mainstream media but you you we we're not going to hear it are we but on this channel we we're just trying to give um uh give a window to to put these stories out there before they're lost to time um by the time the 50th anniversary comes round, we'll we'll have said to a a, a good deal more um a good deal more veterans of the Falklands conflict. If you're out there or uh, you serve yourself down south, if you know somebody, um, uh, it's very difficult to get the guys that actually went up the mountains to come on a podcast. What does that say about war, huh? Um, you know, they, they're carrying that trauma their whole bloody lives. It's But if you are out there, uh, if like Captain Robin Lawrence the other day, you can talk about it and it's not gonna you know you've managed to compartmentalize it all please come on a podcast drop me a line i'd love to chat chat to you i i this arm i i salute you all um i salute gaz and i will see you next time thank you friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.